This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, you're listening to Good Things, the show where we talk to good people who are doing good things. I'm Dashran Johan. Kirsten Han is a Singaporean activist and independent journalist who runs a newsletter called We the Citizens. As an activist and journalist in a country with very little civic space or room for dissent, Kirsten has found herself tangled up with the Singaporean authorities a number of times in her fight for social justice. Kirsten joins me on the show today to share her story. Welcome to the show, Kirsten. Perhaps you can start by telling me a little bit about We the Citizens. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so it's a newsletter that I started mm-hmm. in 2018, uh, mostly kind of out of curiosity and as a sort of for fun thing to to have a newsletter that would sum up things that happened in civil society, human rights and politics in Singapore, because I thought that was, uh, I mean, that's the field that I cover anyway. Mm-hmm. And and I thought that, you know, there's plenty of stuff on, on lifestyle and food and business, but I wanted specifically to look at uh, civil society and human rights issues to kind of look at Singapore from that human rights, uh, social, political lens. And I thought, you know, maybe people would be interested in this. So I just kind of started it first as a, as a free newsletter where like once a week I will write the summary and then it, it was completely free. Anyone could sign up. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of ran that for a little while and then out of, and then when when there was the option to like turn on paid subscriptions, I just kind of thought like, oh, you know, maybe it'll be interesting to see if anybody would actually pay for this. So I just turned it on and left it there for for quite a few months. Actually. Right. Yeah. And and so like, you like you didn't actually get anything extra if you paid versus if you were free, but like over a hundred people did actually just pay for this thing that they could have got for free because they wanted to support the work that I do. That's excellent. And then at the time I was I was also uh, chief editor of New Narrative. Mm-hmm. But then in 2020 when I left New Narrative, I thought, okay, then let's put some time into this newsletter and maybe I could do some original reporting, some more commentary, do some special issues and make it like make something a bit more premium so that people who pay for the newsletter do get a little bit more out of it. So there are special issues that go out midweek that um, are either paywalled or even if they are not paywalled, they are only emailed to the paying subscribers. So that's the convenience of them never missing anything and not having to like check the website to make sure to see if anything's new. And so from there, it kind of grew a bit bigger. So currently it's, it's one of my main income streams at the moment and it gives me a lot of freedom to do the sort of journalism and civil society work that I do. Why did you decide to become a journalist? Was there a particular turning point uh, in your life that sparked something in you? I think it was a it was more gradual. Hmm. I always liked writing, uh, and and it was one of those things where, like, as a kid, I thought maybe it would be nice to be a writer. But I was actually thinking fiction right at the time. It right. hadn't really crossed my mind, like that there was journalism then um when i like started exploring other things i wanted to be at one point a 3d animator because uh, i i was a big fan of pixar films as a kid and i wanted to be yeah basically like a 3d or cgi animator right and uh but then i couldn't draw <laughs> like, so i was very very 
Like I did like get into a course in which I could possibly potentially do that, but I couldn't make it into the specialty, like the 3D animation specialization because my my drawing grades were so bad. <laughs> uh, and so I was like, I was in the course and a very mediocre student in that course. And I didn't really, like, I didn't really dare to say anything to my parents that I was doing, you know, really only just kind of scraping by in that, in that course that I'd chosen for myself. But I think my, my mom could see that, I wasn't exactly doing what I wanted. It hadn't panned out the way that I wanted. And she, I think she she knew me enough to know that if she left me alone, I would never say anything. I would always feel too bad to be like, I think I'm just going to be a straight D student. Right. And like, like she knew that I would just slog to pass, but I would never dare to say like, can I drop out of school? Can I change course or anything? And so um, thankfully my mom was the one who suggested it. She was like, well, if, you're not exactly doing what you want here and you're not exactly doing particularly well either, then, um, you know, you could, why, why don't you go abroad? Because originally the idea had been that if I finish my polytechnic and get my diploma, then maybe my parents would talk about letting me study overseas. Right. Um, and then my mom was like, well, if, if you're literally only just doing this diploma to pass, then why don't you just save that time and just go overseas straight away. So I was very lucky that, that, you know, I had a family that was supportive in that way and able to support me mm -hmm. to do that. So I went to film school in New Zealand and again, was still thinking about fiction. It still right. hadn't entirely crossed my mind to do journalism. Are you a movie uh, buff? Much more before than now. I feel like my brain is so fried after work that now I only watch the most fluffy or like <laughs> Korean drama rom-coms. But yeah, at the yeah. time, I've watched a lot more intelligent films. <laughs> and I was also a massive Lord of the Rings fan. Oh, I'm so, a huge so, Lord of the Rings yeah, fan. Yeah. yeah, so New Zealand was like, you know, I was very happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I went to film school in New Zealand. Uh, like, So the school allowed me to, allows you to like go through either a visual arts track or, or writing comms track. I went through the communications track because again I didn't want to risk like being bad at art mm -hmm. and and in the comms track there was like a journalism elective which I did and I thought oh that's that's interesting but I it kind of was like oh that's that seems like a fun thing to do also but then I was very focused on making film wanting to work in film at the time so then um, I didn't really think that much more about it it was only when I came back to Singapore, I was still looking for like film and TV jobs. But the first job that I got was uh, actually in documentary production. So I was uh, first a production assistant, then an assistant producer um, working on documentaries. And it was really like a crossover of film and journalism. And that was very interesting to me. But I was also volunteering with the Online Citizen, which is an uh, independent news website mm -hmm. in Singapore. It's since been shut down, but like that's kind of where I got my start learning how to write about social political issues and uh, helping to cover an election. And so it was very like hands-on experience for me. So after I left the, um, my first job, I decided um, I was going to study my master's, but then I decided like, yeah, let's, let's just cross over into journalism completely. That's why my master's was also in journalism. 
Right. So would you say that um, you develop um, your passion for journalism and, and, and social justice? It came at sort of this uh, similar um, a point, um, a similar intersection, um, especially when it comes to pushing for the abolition of the death penalty. Why are you particularly passionate about that? That was actually the, the first issue that I encountered mm. Uh, when I was volunteering at the Online Citizen because the very first thing that I volunteered to do for them was to do Vox Pops interviews uh, in in Raffles Place, which is a main central business district area, asking people what they know about the death penalty and the mandatory death penalty in Singapore. Right. So I myself at the time hadn't heard of the mandatory death penalty in Singapore. And I was kind of like, well, I guess if I'm going to be part of the team that's asking people about it, it would be a bit embarrassing <laughs> to be asking. And then they're like, what do you know? That's actually, I also don't know, right? So, right. so I was like, okay, I need to study before I go. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I've ever read actual statutes. Um, that was the first time I've actually like gone through the law. Um, as a kid, I always kind of assumed that like only lawyers can read the law, right? But then right. Like, that was the first time I looked at it myself. And I realized that we have the mandatory death penalty, which means that the judges don't get to choose what the sentence is. If you're guilty, you're dead, that's it, right? And that was quite shocking to me because I hadn't realized that. And always had this impression that, you know, we're kind of told growing up that Singapore is such a rule of law country. You kind of assume that things like miscarriages of justice or like, um, mistakes in the legal system are things that happen elsewhere, but not to Singapore. Right. And then to realize that, no, no, you actually have this thing called the mandatory death penalty where the judge doesn't even get to like consider mitigating factors and look at the specifics of a case. You just get sentenced to death like that. It was very shocking to me. I had always been under the impression that like if we execute somebody, it's like 150% absolutely that person is guilty, absolutely that person deserved it. Only the most hardened like criminals and drug lords get the death penalty. And then mm-hmm. to realize who is actually on death row was really, very shocking. And it kind of went from there. Right. Justin, tell me a little bit about your family. When you were growing up, did your parents or other family members discuss politics and, and social justice? No, actually, we're not a political family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think actually we, there are only more discussions about politics now that like my brother and I are adults. And it's probably also because that it's what I do, right? So it comes up in conversation more naturally. Right. But like as a kid, it was not anything that people talked about. You know, I realized that my late grandfather was actually you know, fairly political and very opinionated, but he just never really brought it up as a kid. I think he didn't really think it was something that anyone else in the family would be interested in talking about. Right. Um, but like after I started doing what I do, then he like brings it up, right? Like, I mean, it, it's quite funny. He used to like call me after reading, like he would monitor my blog post and my Facebook. And then he would call me after reading what I've written. And then he'll say, you better be careful, you better be careful. Then don't get targeted or, or punished for what you write. And then he will proceed to give criticism that's way worse than what I just wrote. 
Right. <laughs> yeah. So, he, but so I think <laughs> as a child, he didn't think that, you know, it was anything that people wanted to discuss. But right. then after I started getting involved in this, then he, he would occasionally like mention things that um, made me realize that actually, yeah, like he was also following and, and interested. And, and I mean, just the period of history that he's lived through, um, you know, it's just so interesting. Like we have, uh, there's this case in our anti-colonial leftist history where a group of uh, students in the University Socialist Club had published a, and had published articles, and they were anti-colonial, and the British had charged them with sedition. And this was the Faja, you know, now they're called. It was a Faja case where, like, their, their paper was called Faja, and they had printed an article, and they were charged for sedition for that article. And it's not a well-known period or, or like, incident in history now because right. so much of our leftist history is, is like, censored or cut out and mm-hmm. obscured, right? Um, it was a case that a young Lee Kuan Yew became prominent for because he was a junior lawyer in the defense. And so it was, it's this, like, leftist law sort of case, right? And then it was only... Like so many years later that like my granddad accompanied me to this old leftist lunch gathering. I brought him because I thought it might it might be interesting for him. Right. And then he just mentioned and then he suddenly like out of nowhere was like, you know, I went and watched that trial every single day at the time because I was very interested in like like the British were charging young men for sedition just because they were like critical of mm-hmm. colonialism. And then he went and actually sat in the public gallery and watched that trial every day. And he's never, ever mentioned it. He never mentioned it before. He never mentioned <laughs> it again. But but yeah, like, so it was interesting that, you know, that was that, but I didn't know any of it as a kid. Absolutely. Now, in a separate interview, you mentioned, um, and I quote, I grew up a typical middle-class Chinese kid. The system had pretty much been built for me. What does this mean exactly, uh, a system that is built for me? Yeah, so Singapore, you know, despite saying, you know, all, all it says about being multiracial, multireligious, very harmonious society is actually a very stratified society. And there are government policies that are clearly designed to achieve certain policy goals and, and to engineer society in a particular way that the government deems desirable, right? So, for instance, our public housing policy uh, prioritizes straight married couples. So right. if you're a straight married Singaporean couple, you can apply for new built-to-order flats, you get the largest amount of subsidy and all that, right? So. So the public housing scheme prioritizes this sort of nuclear family sort of thing. Um, there's a lot of uh, policies that are actually built to encourage people to what they be what they call self-reliance. So you, you rely on yourself and your family as the first line of whatever social services or or support that you need. So so you know, like they expect you to be able to like, oh, if you need um care work done and you're working then you know can your parents take care of your children for you you know this sorts of thing and then also being Chinese there's a, a great amount of privilege in the system just the way that a lot of things are designed 
as if the Singaporean is Chinese by default. And also that there are special assistance plan schools that get, you know, particular extra support and funding for programs that are only Chinese schools. Mm -hmm. So I went to a special assistance plan school. I went to what's actually considered quite an elite school in Singapore. I went solely because my mother was an alumni and so she can skip the balloting, skip the queue, skip all the other desperate parents trying to get their kids in and just get me in just based on her alumni status. Right. Uh, my family lives in public housing that, you know, because, yeah, my parents straight married Singaporeans, they, you know, they can move to public housing. We are relatively middle class enough that we can live in like five room flat and have space and it was well and my grandparents live nearby and they're both retired primary school teachers so that meant that like in my early primary school years both childcare and tuition was free mm. <laughs> so like it was just very comfortable you know like it's it's exactly the sort of middle class singaporean upbringing that is considered this this should be the ideal standard right like in this nuclear family of parents with two children, one boy, one girl, and then grandparents are nearby. They help take care of you. And then, like, well, not well off, but comfortable enough that it's not like we have to go to financial services and, right. and do means testing. So it was just all quite smooth. And what would you say is the reality for many other Singaporeans? For, like, minority Singaporeans, mm -hmm. there are a lot of, other experiences that they go through that would never ever even have occurred to me mm. uh, so for example like I have friends who you know if they're trying to sell the old family flat in public housing flat uh, and they're minorities there is an ethnic quota on every block of flats in Singapore you know they'll say it has to be this percentage Chinese this percentage Malay this percentage Indian or others and that actually means that if you're trying to sell a flat, you have a, and, and you're a minority, you have a much smaller pool of buyers, potential mm. buyers, because you can only sell to like someone else of your race, right? Otherwise, the quota might not pass. And, and so this complicates selling or buying flats. Um, and also, of course, affects then the, the asking price, right? If you have a smaller amount of buyers, then actually then the value of your flat is affected. And I would never ever even have thought of that if I didn't hear from minority friends right. that this was an issue. Mm -hmm. You know, it just would not have been in my experience. I would never have had to deal with it myself. There are other things like um, racist assumptions. Um, there's no anti-discrimination legislation or, or, you know, very good awareness of anti-discrimination. So, you know, there's discriminatory rental housing ads, there's a lot of just lack of awareness and also, I mean, straight up racism and assumptions about different minority groups. And then if you're LGBT, there's a lot of things that are not open to you, right? You're not recognized as a family unit. Even if you're married abroad and come back, they don't recognize your marriage. And that really kind of makes a lot of things more difficult. You can't get the public housing that I got to grow up, grow up in. Um, you know, if, you're, if your spouse is not a Singaporean, then your visa issues are going to be 
such a nightmare because right. they don't recognize that they are your spouse. You know, all these sorts of problems that as a straight middle-class Chinese Singaporean, it would never have, I would never have had to deal with. On the show with me today is Kirsten Han, an independent journalist and activist from Singapore. After the break, I ask her, what's the reality of being a journalist in Singapore? Keep it here on Good Things, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Good Things. I'm Darshan Johan. And on the show with me today is Kirsten Han, independent journalist and activist from Singapore. So, Kirsten, what does speaking truth to power mean to you? And what does press freedom mean to you? For better or worse, the media has a huge amount of power in shaping public opinion. Mm-hmm. And in Singapore, we see that used for political purposes a lot, right? Because we don't have a plural media landscape. We don't have a diverse media landscape and we don't really have a lot of press freedom. There's a lot of internalized self-censorship in the press. Right. Um, and so a lot of the times what we see in the mainstream press are things that the ruling party would like to prime the public for or you know, things that they messages that they want to sell to the public. And it, it's, they're quite open about it, right? Like Lee Kuan Yew used to say that, you know, he doesn't believe in the fourth estate. Right. The press is not elected. And therefore, the press's job is to educate the public on the government's policies. So then that has a very different tenor to if you did believe that the press was the watchdog of the powerful, right? If, right. if your job is just to educate, then clearly you're just, your articles are just going to be about trying to show the public how the government knows best. Mm-hmm. And that, that is a very different approach. Uh, and like, I think it's even debatable if that is called journalism. So, so I think press freedom is really important, but not particularly well understood in Singapore. And I think speaking truth to power is really about who the journalist serves. Do you serve the government? Are you part of that machinery that speaks to the people from the government's perspective? Or are you part of the people that tells the people's stories and looks at the government from the people's perspective? And so I think it's it's about where you stand and where you see yourself. And sometimes... The media, and, and I don't think just the Singapore media, but like traditional legacy media um, in Singapore and elsewhere do sometimes have this elitist approach of feeling like they are also above the people and then we talk down to the people. But I think speaking truth to power means we have to talk with the people. Paint a picture for me, Christian. What is the mm. reality of being a journalist in Singapore? Yeah, so I think the first thing to note is that my experience as a journalist is probably very different from a lot of other journalists in Singapore, particularly mm-hmm. those that get to work in the traditional newsrooms. Right. Because I think, yeah, so firstly, I I don't have that sort of newsroom experience, right? So I've been uh, a one-person operation for a very long time. Right. Uh, and, and I mean, that there, there are good parts and bad parts, right? It means that I have... I don't have a lot of institutional or structural support. So it's not like 
if anything happens, there is an in-house legal team I can go and approach. It's not right. like there's an HR that can help me. Uh, it's not like I have, you know, um, entitled leave days or off days or sick leave that I can take. If I don't work, I just don't get paid, right? Mm-hmm. So um, so there, there are all those considerations. But I think also, um, in a way, being independent like this, being a freelancer and a solo operation offers a lot more freedom than what I hear from from peers who have worked in traditional newsrooms. Right? There's a lot more watching your back in a traditional newsroom. Right. There's a lot more awareness that your editor might be gatekeeping or censoring. Um, and then there's a lot of self-censorship. First, then being aware that your editor might again also self-censor one round and then it get censored <laughs> you know right. and, and it's not like the government is directly censoring it's it's a lot of self-censoring or you know having senior appointments be people who have become so attuned to what the government likes to see right uh, that they do it themselves right it's not like the government needs to have a censorship office where they pre-censor the newspapers it's people have become very good at doing it themselves, which is why I, was, I say that like press freedom is important, but I don't think it's very well understood in Singapore. And I think a lot of local journalists might have internalized the self-censorship so much that it is treated as if self-censorship is a natural part of your job as a journalist. But what is the fear there? What is it that, is it is it the fear of getting your license revoked or is it, um, you know, looking at it on the, uh, the complete extreme where the fear of just, you know, um, the government making you disappear in, in essence. What, what's the fear? I think it depends on what level you are as a journalist. If right. you're a junior reporter, then the fear is losing your job. Right. Uh, if you are someone who was a scholar, that, that is like you were, your university was paid for because you were, say, a Singapore press holding scholar and right. you are serving a five-year bond. Because like they give you the scholarship and they say you have to like work five years in, in our newsroom, right? Mm-hmm. Then the fear is you lose your job. And if you lose your job, you have to pay back your bond, right? So you, you like, even if you quit immediately after the five years, you must still at least survive that five years, right? So, so that, there's that. People who can't afford to lose their jobs... Um, I I don't know for sure, but I understand that um, the mainstream media also pays pretty well compared to whatever else you can get as a journalist. Right. Singapore. Um, so, you know, for, for some people, it's just a financial thing, right? You can't afford to lose your job. Yep. Uh, I think if you are higher up, like if you are like a chief editor sort already, by that point, to be blunt, I think they are pretty much almost political appointments at that point. And, right. and it might have just been internalized that this is actually how we do mm. journalism. I also, you know, it might just be so internalized that it's like, yes, I also agree, even as a journalist, I agree that we are not the fourth estate. You know, that sort of outlook on journalism. And it might have reached a point where you don't actually see that there's anything wrong with it. Right. Is there like fear of, let's say when you are doing your work as an independent journalist, right? Is there fear of um, draconian laws um, being used against you, whether it's sedition, um, you know, let's say ISA, um, things like that? Uh, is that that fear as well? Yeah, it's kind of in 
the back of my head. So I wouldn't say like, I think it's it's more insidious than directly like, oh, with this law, I'm afraid of getting charged. I think right. that it's more an awareness that there are a whole range of ways that life could be made very difficult for you. Um, that's That ranges from criminal charges to defamation charges to contempt of court charges or to just being smeared on social media or to end up having trolls come after you. Um, you know, so not all of it is also directly from government or ruling party, right? Sometimes it's just from like um, very hardcore PAP supporters who just take it upon themselves to come after you. And then on, on the other side, there are um, people who just don't like women to be so vocal. Right. So then there's all this, like there's political stuff, there's gender stuff, there's, different things so i think um the main thing that's on my mind when i write and i think the main thing that affects the way that i write i've been thinking about this like how has it affected the way that i write mm-hmm. what sort of writer would i be if i hadn't had to deal with this is this kind of habit now that i've developed over like so many years of writing in singapore of having a corner like whenever i write anything a corner of my brain is already thinking about what is the most bad faith interpretation of this that someone could possibly come up with to use to attack me either to through like investigation or or defamation or whatever or just to troll online um what will show up in, say, what might a pro-PAP troll misquote to put in a meme to try to smear and harass. And, like, so a part of my brain is already thinking about that. And, like, Mm. how can I adjust my writing to caveat such bad faith interpretations, which I feel actually makes the writing more clunky. Right. Because you, you then have so many caveats in your writing or or you hedge language that could be actually more concise, but you you get a bit hedgy because you don't want people to like go and misinterpret. Mm. Um, and so there's that. So just having this corner of your mind almost imagining, like like even while you're writing your draft, already having part of your head going, and if I was in the dock being cross-examined, how would I explain this? you know, sort of thing. And I think that's not a natural way of writing and not a good way of writing, but has become very much part of the process of writing in Singapore for me. Right. What about the police? Um, How are they when, you know, when it comes to, um, let's say, activism, um, when it comes to journalism, are, are you afraid of the police, police investigations, and, and things like that? Do you? I I know you've you've had an encounter with police um recently, but do you remember your first encounter with the police and and what that made you feel? So my first proper encounter with the police was in twenty seventeen, uh, when I had been at a vigil for a death row prisoner who was executed mm-hmm. that morning. And actually that whole night was fine. We we lit candles and we put up his photo. So he, his name was Prabhagaran. He was a Malaysian. And we had lit candles and put up his photo, leaned it against the prison 
um, wall, we were outside by a bus stop. And within 15 minutes, the police came and said, you can't have the candles and you can't have the photos. Uh, and we said, okay, love. so they, they confiscated the photos and the candles. But they actually told us that we could stay as long as we didn't light any more open flames or put up any more of these signs of photos. So we said, okay, we will just sit around. And so the whole night had actually passed without any issue. And then two months later, uh, they started going around the homes of a lot of people who were there and giving us letters, summoning us for questioning for investigation. So then I had to go in and, and be questioned. And I think for Singapore, Singaporean activists, I think, uh, I mean, we don't actually worry about things like violence or torture in police custody, which unfortunately in Malaysia, I think a lot of people have to worry about. Right. Uh, like violence in, in interrogation. I think in Singapore, that's as far as we know, not prevalent. Mm -hmm. and, and at least for activists, I've never heard of like being beaten or anything. So at least that's not something that I worry about. But I think what's um, the, the crux of these sorts of police investigation is just the amount of time and mental energy that it sucks out of you because um, you have to then think about so many things. Right. Because you have to think about, like, you start wondering about what they're going to ask you, and then you have to think about, like, you worry. Like, so for, for me, like, what I worry about is not so much what will happen to me, but I don't want to, like, inadvertently drag other people into things right or or to like cause trouble for other people um but i think one thing that really kind of takes up a lot of time and energy for people and headspace is knowing that so many offenses in singapore are arrestable and that means that the police don't need a warrant to arrest you and they also don't need warrants to search your house and seize your things so then even if you're called in for something as stupid as like for, for my first experience, right? 15 minutes illegal assembly outside the prison. Right. And I have to start thinking about like, what if they want to confiscate my phone? Then what are all the contacts and messages in my phone? Um, what if they decide they want to come to your house and search for your laptop? And, you know, like, so like, what sort of um, security measures, what sort of privacy concerns are there? Do I need to think about, do I need to... to to deal with, mm -hmm. uh, and especially I think for me as well, as a journalist, actually all activists have this concern, but like as a journalist also, I have a lot of contacts and messages that are not to do with whatever the police might want to investigate, right? right. But like at the same time, if they take my phone, then so much gets exposed. Yes. So then I have to think about that. So actually my most recent encounter with the police, they asked for the phone that I was using and then they asked me to unlock and hand over the passwords to all my social media accounts and then they told me you can't use those social media accounts while the investigation is ongoing but they wouldn't tell me how long the investigation would be 
Right. And I said, I can't do that. I said, I can't give you my social media password. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, as a journalist, I have privacy concerns. I have questions about why you need all my social media accounts. And like, I use social media for work. Like, I can't not use these accounts for however long you want to take. What if your investigation takes one year? And and then, you know, I was just like, basically, if I gave you my social media accounts, I can stop being a journalist because, you know, how are people supposed to feel if they know that they talk to me as a journalist? There's so much trust put right. into talking to a journalist. And how are they supposed to feel if they are thinking, oh, then if she gets picked up by a police, she just hands it all over, mm-hmm. right? So I, I said, no, I can't do that. And then they kind of implied that there may or may not be an additional obstruction sort of offense. And then I, I was still like, oh, sorry, no, can't, no can do. So I'm still waiting to hear if there might be an additional obstruction offense or not. It was very odd though, because then um, I had a friend who was also being questioned for the same thing. And he was being questioned in the room next to mine. And when he came out of his interrogation, he said that they did not ask him for his social media passwords. In fact, he was told that he could actually log out of the apps. So wow. it was very odd that like specifically that me. That is strange. No one yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So we talked about the challenges that, you know, you've, you continue to encounter, you have encountered. So what is it that drives you to keep doing what you're doing um, despite the enormous challenges that you face, despite how um, small the civic space is in Singapore, what what keeps you going? I think it's it's meaningful work. So I mean, I have a lot of like I I always like sometimes think like why do I choose such a difficult? This seems like <laughs> a very difficult way to live. Um, you know, like surely I could be earning more income right. somewhere could be living in a nicer house or something. Uh, So I think about those things, right? Like as a career choice, does this make sense? But I never ever have to worry about whether my work is meaningful or not, which sometimes when I bump into old friends who work corporate jobs and and like office desk jobs, they bring that up, right? Like they are like, oh, I don't even know if my work is meaningful. If I stopped going to the office one day, would anyone even notice? (laughs) Like I'm gone. And... And I feel very fortunate that that is not a question I've ever had to ask myself. And so I have that, at the very least, that assurance that I live a meaningful life, um, which I think is is very important to me. And also, I think there is a lot of value and I get a lot of energy and, and encouragement from from my peers or so other people who are in civil society who because of them, I've learned a lot and I've had such a different life from what I thought I would have as a kid um, when I grew up. And and I think it's so much more fulfilling this way. And then so many people that I've met on this kind of journey have been really impactful, um, you know, like families of death row prisoners. Um, all those relationships that were made, I think are very, very meaningful and and I also feel like there's a lot of meaning in creating space, not just for myself, but for like other Singaporeans and, and future generations of Singaporeans. So I, I quite often hear from younger Singaporeans, so uh, 
those who are still in school or in university or just graduated who who sometimes write to me or message me and say that like what I've done has influenced them and has right. you know encouraged them to also want to get involved mm-hmm. and or that has has shown them that it's it's possible to speak out and it's possible to do things and I think that's very like that's that's very meaningful for me to hear and and so for me also it's important to keep going to demonstrate that it's possible to keep going absolutely all right before we wrap this conversation up i just have one more mm. question um mm. what is your hope um when you, when you when you think of an ideal singapore um, you know, you think about the work that you do, the changes that you're pushing for. What is your hope for Singapore moving forward? Right now, we live in this very punitive and controlled society where Singaporeans are treated like children. And mm. and we have this very top-down paternalistic sort of governance that demonstrates that those in charge have no faith in Singaporeans. Like they don't have faith that we can handle difficult discussions. They don't have faith that that we can make our own decisions on a lot of things. There's a lot of desire for control, right? And so like we are not allowed to live our full lives as our full selves because of so much control and so much condescension and and so much of this has been internalized by ourselves, right? Like so many Singaporeans self-police to the point where sometimes even if the police don't come after activists, some Singaporean will report you to the police first. You know, that sort of right. self-policing culture. And so I I would like to imagine a Singapore that is not so hard on each other and also not so hard on ourselves and that we can actually be a, like a real community and not like a PAP grassroots dictated sort of community <laughs> that we could actually relate to each other as people more closely that we can have a gentler future where we think about how we can address harm and suffering in ways that don't inflict more harm and suffering which is what our current you know um, criminal punishment system does and so all these ways in which Singaporeans just can be fuller and more open and participate in in our own communities and create our own meanings of things in Singapore, right? I think that I would like to see a country where we all had more faith in each other, that that people can do good things and amazing things together. On that note, thank you so much for joining me today, Kirsten. No, thank you for having me. That was Kirsten Han, independent journalist and activist from Singapore. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We are available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Good Things on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.